Ellie said last week that truths shape the way we see the world and that truths shape us. And I've got to agree. The truths we believe are the stories that we stay loyal to. Let's have a think about that. The truths we believe are the stories that we stay loyal to. And when I walk around, when I make decisions, when I react to someone, I'm doing this according to the stories that I'm loyal to. And I reckon there's three stories that, that I really struggle with. And I'm tipping that you might too. The first story that, that I really struggle with is the I am what I own story. Anyone relate to that? The second one is the I am what I do story. And the third one is I am what others say or think about me, that story. And these three stories that we buy into, they're human they're consistent and they're very, very powerful. But there's one story, there's one truth that cuts through right through these. And that truth can transform the way we live, the way we treat others and the way we interpret the world around us. A truth that can set us free. But before we get there, let's take a quick look at those three stories I mentioned. The first one, the, the I am what I own story. This is the one that says, I'm okay because I've got heaps of good stuff. When we live according to this truth, we trade our time, our energy for the things that we own. And, you know, we get sold that Australian dream. And culturally, this is very, very enticing. You know, the lifestyle, holidays, home ownership. We're bombarded with messages that to be okay, we've got to have stuff. And I'm not immune to the power of this story. So I ask myself, what am I trading my short years on earth for? And so I ask you guys, how much of your time and energy are you trading so you can get more stuff and possessions? And are you okay with that? The second story that, that I often buy into is the, the I am what I do one. And this is the story that says I'm okay because I'm good at something. I've got a good job or I'm so-called successful at something. And this one speaks directly into, into my ego, our ego, our self-image, our identity. And it's often work-related or achievement-based. And when chatting with people, you, know, you go up to someone and you say, oh, g'day, how you going, I'm Peter? So what do you do? And we have this little... Uh, if I can work out what they do, I can sort of place them in you know, hierarchy and society and all that sort of stuff. Now, I'm okay at a couple of things, but the reality is we're only all a day away from everything changing. And when things change, am I still okay? So I ask you, what, what, to what extent do you strive for success to make sure that you feel okay? And are you okay with that? The third truth we often buy into is the I am what other people say or think about me, that story. We all know that one? When we start to believe what others say about us, this builds up this, this, this myth of who we think we are. Now this can be positive things that people say about us. And this inflates the ego and we make decisions based on you know, that little rush that happens when someone comes up and says, hey... You're awesome at that. There's also negative things that people say about us, like, you know, you, you're pretty useless at that, or you're not very good looking, or, or whatever it is. 
And these, these are the ones that we often let define us. We can spend a lot of time and energy developing our reputation and often we make decisions based on preserving it. Now I've got to say, I actually, I, I love it when people tell me I'm good at something. And on the flip side, if, if someone says something bad about me, one of the most painful experiences I've ever had is when, when someone absolutely teed off and cut me deep based on some misinformation. So can you think of something positive or negative that someone said about you that perhaps you're giving a bit of life to, that perhaps you're, you're buying into that truth? So these three truths that we live by about stuff, ego and words, they build our sense of identity. However, there's a deeper truth that cuts through these and can set us free. In, in chapter 17 of John's record of the life of Jesus, he records Jesus praying just before his time of crucifixion. In the last part of this prayer, he refers to us sitting today under this tree, even generations later, when he refers to those who believe in the message of Jesus. And in verse 26, Jesus is praying to God. He says, God, I will continue to make you known to them in order that the love you have for me may be in them. And that I myself may be in them. And what he's saying here is that, that the love that exists between Jesus and Creator Father God is available for us. We can choose to live according to this truth. Because when we live with the, the I am loved truth, we overcome the need to feel safe, important or okay through how much stuff we have our so-called success or failures or the approval of others. I am loved. You are loved. God loves me. Now these are the, the seemingly ridiculously simple statements that for those of us who, who've been around a while, we've heard them a million times. But if we allow the magnitude of that simple truth, that profound truth, to impact us, we can actually become free. Free to be content with what we have. Free to share what we have with others. Free to be defined more by the quality of relationships rather than social status or our achievements. We become free to encourage and celebrate the success of others. Free to be honest with ourselves about the skills and talents we do have and the skills and talents we actually don't have free from the need to please others. But to live out this I am loved truth, we need to connect to it, to God. We need to access the story of being loved regularly because we have so many competing stories that want our attention. We have to choose to connect to God. And really, you know, what we're doing just before with with worship, with singing. This is about this connection to the story that I am loved. So that, that aspects of the, this big sense of worship, you know, prayer and stillness, scripture, music, sitting in creation, it's about this connection with this story. You know, Yvonne sharing last week about writing out scripture verses. This is this reminder of connection to this story that, that I am loved. 
And we've got to work hard sometimes to embed this story into our lives. Because if we don't take responsibility for choosing what stories we're loyal to, what truths we take on and live by, then someone or something else will define them for us. Some of us here today, as, as I have needed to lately, we, we need to connect with that truthful story that, that I am loved. As we do this, we start to see that others are loved by God too. And that simple but profound truth can change everything. I'm going to invite Ash up now. Thanks, Peter. Uh, so I'm Ash Knopp, and with my Liz, wife Liz and daughters Alfie and Lola, we've been attending NCR for a couple of years now. I want to start by just saying how grateful I am for this. How good is church? This is spectacular. More of this. I'm going to start by reading the parable of the prodigal son. But not all of it. Most readings of the parable concentrate on the flight and return of the younger brother. But uh, this misses the real message of the story because there are two brothers and they represent two different ways of seeking acceptance into the kingdom of heaven. Luke 15. After squandering his wealth in wild living, the younger brother got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older brother was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he is, has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because he's, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I grew up uh, the eldest of three boys, a pastor's kid in the Salvation Army. And after the obligatory years of teenage rebellion, thanks to some incredible experiences like camps uh, and some encouragement and mentoring from some amazing people, I changed my ways and I got into the family business. So I became a youth pastor. It was during these adolescent years that I was at my most zealous, dogmatic, 
in my beliefs and behaviours um, wedded to the cause, whether that was biblical truths or denominational rules and rituals, much like one of the characters in this parable. Timothy Keller has a book called The Prodigal God, and I'm going to reference what he says here about this parable. In Act 1, in the person of the younger brother, Jesus gives us a depiction of sin that anyone would recognise. The young man humiliates his family and lives a self-indulgent, dissolute life. He is totally out of control. He is alienated from the father who represents God in the story. Anyone who lives like that would be cut off from God, as all the listeners to the parable would have agreed. In Act 2, however, the focus is on the elder brother. He is fastidiously obedient to his father and therefore by analogy to the commands of God. He is completely under control and quite self-disciplined. So we have two sons, one bad by conventional standards and one good. Yet both are alienated from the father. The father has to go out and invite each of them to come into the feast of his love. So there is not just one lost son in this parable, there are two. The bad son enters the father's feast, but the good son will not. The lover of prostitutes is saved, but the man of moral rectitude is still lost. Why doesn't the elder brother go in? He himself gives the reason. Because I've never disobeyed you. The older brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. It is not his sins that create the barrier between him and his father. It's the pride he has in his moral record. It's not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness that is keeping him from sharing in the feast of the father. Elder brothers or sisters, for that matter, don't know their elder brothers, perhaps ever. Or perhaps until they're exposed, until they face adversity, a real adversity, an adversity that is, uh, shakes you to the core, that exposes your true self and the depth of your faith. For me, I had a season of pain and loss, a significant relationship breakup and the death of my mum to cancer. This floored me and exposed me as nothing more than a religious zealot with no substance, no true substance, to my relationship with God. I was in a position of church leadership and responsibility, but in reality I was hiding my true colours, putting on the face of religion rather than building a foundational relationship with God. I may not have broken the rules, like the younger brother, but I was every bit as spiritually lost because sin is not just about rule-breaking, it is putting yourself in the place of God as Saviour, Lord and Judge. Timothy goes on to say, The younger son's flight from the father was crashingly obvious. He left the father literally, physically and morally. Though the older son stayed at home, he was actually more distant and alienated from the father than his brother because he was blind to his true condition. He would have been horribly offended by the suggestion that he was rebelling against the father's authority and love, but he was deeply. I'm eternally grateful that the prodigal God forgives and forgets 
and is willing and able to renew those that use him for their own self-centred ends rather than loving, enjoying and serving him for his own sake. Thank you for listening and I cannot recommend this book more highly, The Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. I'm going to hand it over to Viv. Thanks, Ash. Good morning and morning to you people at home. I'm going to start off with a bit of a morbid question, I'm sorry. If you knew that your time was up here on earth and people asked you, what do you think is the most important truth? I wonder what you might say. You might share the wisdom from Pete and Ash that they've, they've just spoken about. I'll give you a moment. What's the very last truth you would want to pass on to your loved ones? From all your life experiences, what wisdom in a sentence would you say? Well, I'm asking you that question because Jesus was in that spot. Just days before his death, and the, the disciple Matthew writes his response in um, Matthew 22, verse 36. The religious leaders of the time who were constantly bugging Jesus, they ask him, which commandment is the greatest? In other words, what are you going to say is the most important truth above all the things that you've been saying? And Jesus answers without a moment's hesitation. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. They're well-known verses. Love God. Love others. This is the truth that has shaped me significantly in the last year. When I read these verses last year, I noticed something for the very first time. When, he, when Jesus is asked what matters most in a life of faith, Jesus doesn't say, believe the right things. He doesn't say, maintain personal purity. He doesn't say, worship like this. Or, and I'll smile at Pete over there, attend a church like that. He doesn't even say, read your scriptures, pray every day. Preach the gospel to every living creature. Now, they are valuable things, worthy things. But Jesus says, love, that's it. All of Christianity distilled down into those few words, one word, love. Love God, love your neighbour. And I noticed something else too. The order's really particular and it's interesting. Love God first and then love others. 
And so that's what I did. I would deliberately run those words through my head. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. And things began to change. Now I've loved God for a long time. And I've loved others for a good portion of my life too. But this year was different. So love God. How did I love God more than I already had? For me, it was found in the awe and the wonder of his creation. It was a full moon lit up in the night sky. It was the kookaburras that landed on my deck and even on my laptop when I was teaching classes outside online. It was stopping and pausing on a walk and noticing things I might otherwise not have noticed if I'd rushed past. It was feeling the ocean on my feet the first time out of lockdown. And a bit of a highlight, swimming with a sea turtle. Things that made my soul sing. And I marvelled with the awe and the wonder and the transcendentness that is beyond the here and now, connecting me to my creator and enabling a greater appreciation of him and then to be able to love him. So I wonder what makes your soul sing? What draws your attention to the incredible, miraculous God? The intricacies of his creation that he puts before us every day. Maybe for you it's a sunrise or a sunset. It might be a beautiful piece of music. It might be your favourite spot in the garden. You don't have to look too far. I wonder now if you want to look up into the tree here. What do you notice? If you're at home, look out the window. Look out. What do you see? What are the things that you notice that you might never have noticed before? And how does that speak to you about the intricacies and marvellous nature of our Lord Creator? All I can say is that those moments filled my heart with an appreciation and a love like a bank filling up with credits that needed to then flow out for the second part, loving others. The truth that shaped me last year has a tougher side and that's this. The reality is that it's tougher to love some people than others, isn't it? Am I the only one that finds that to be true? I know I'm among friends. Jesus goes on to say in his response to the religious leaders, to the question, that we are to love our enemies. Oh, mate, you okay? Yeah. So I found myself asking that question. Who are my enemies? I don't think I have people lined up who don't like me or me them but in 2021 really my love and forgiveness capacity was put to the test and perhaps yours was too I became aware of different types of enemies less obvious but opposing nonetheless 
isolation, changing course in education, polarisation, divided nation, alienation, vaccination, disorganisation, discrimination. These are just a few of the things that in a mere moment reading a headline or hearing an opposing point of view that might have lit my fuse. And I suspect some of us might have had differing points of view across the last 12 months. So how do I react, I noticed, to those who disrupt my agenda or my sense of control, who go about things a bit differently from me, who are different or think differently to me? That's when I need love. And you know what? I found it. Most of the time. And if not straight away, after a bit of a struggle for some time, love God, love others, love God, love others. I can't account for the intensity of love that welled up inside me. Moments where there has been this incredible, deep, patient, kind, forgiving, hopeful love. Now, there's a good amount of vulnerability in getting up here and sharing your hope and how truth has changed you in my head and my heart. Um, but I'm learning. I think you hear that I'm learning and I haven't got it all together. It's a truth that I understand in my head and I know in my heart, but I'm still putting it into action. So one final thought to loving others, especially loving our enemies. There's one other pattern that I notice when Jesus talks. He often repeated this phrase. He says, they say, I say. Or you say, I say. Every time Jesus could describe his opponent's arguments, he knew them, he understood them before he shared his own. They say, I say, you say, I say. So I think for me this year, in fact I know, that I need to be able to articulate other people's arguments or opposing views before I express my own. Can I give it what they believe back to them and in doing so show the patience and the love and the time and the care that we need for one another? Or am I too intent at times to, not re to just think of the next argument I'm going to pitch back? Press my own point. So there it is, the next layer of truth for me to discover. I realise I'm only just beginning with this truth of loving God, loving others, and there's a whole lot more of shaping of me to go. And I pray that as I do, I might be bringing a bit more love, a bit more understanding, a bit more peace into the community and the world that we find ourselves in it now and going forward. So we're going to sing now about that love. 
let's celebrate the love that God gives us and that we can share with others.